Dr. Penny Bishop joins us on this episode of Vermont Ed Reads to talk about her new book, The Successful Middle School. Really, it's an old book that she and co-author Lisa Harrison have updated to place equity and identity firmly in the center, where both you and I, dear listeners, know it should really be, really, really be, always, first and forever. So if you're looking for something to talk about and focus on instead of how supposedly behind we're all getting during the pandemic, which is a lot. We have some deeply thinky thoughts for you with the leader of the middle school thought revolution. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this is Vermont Ed Reads, a podcast of books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Let's chat. Thanks so much for joining me, Penny. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, thanks for having me, Jeannie. I'm, I'm delighted to be back. I, um, I'm Penny Bishop, as you mentioned, and I'm a, a professor of middle grades education at the University of Vermont, uh, where I teach uh, teachers and especially those who want to become middle grades teachers. And I conduct research on um, responsive learning opportunities and learning environments for young adolescents. Last time you were here was um, over a year ago and we talked about personalized learning in the middle grades and we're so glad to have you back. Um, So I also know that you're an avid reader and you and I have swapped book suggestions before. What are you reading now? What's on your nightstand? Yeah, I I love that question. Thank you for asking. I um, just finished last night, um, The Vanishing Half. I don't know if you've heard of that or read it. Did you read it? Yeah, yeah, I can tell from your face that you read it. Um, So it's by Britt Bennett. And uh, it's a really interesting, as you know, a really interesting take on um, racial identity and gender identity and uh, follows the lives of of a set of twins from the 1950s to the 1990s and how their paths diverge in pretty significant ways. So I uh, was up late finishing it. I couldn't put it down. Oh, that was such a good read. I loved that one. And what I really felt about that book was it helped me um, sort of uh, understand colorism a little bit more and the way that colorism plays out in people's lives and their Mm -hmm. lived experience. Yeah. Yes, yes. The whole idea of passing was quite a quite a new one for me as a white woman here. So um, there is a book. Uh, I'll put a link in our in our um, transcript. A middle level um, book about um, that that sort of touches on similar themes um, by Brandy Colbert, and it's called I think it's called The Only Black Girls in Town. And so um, The Vanishing Half is obviously an adult book, but if you wanted to talk about issues of colorism and passing in the classroom, this book would be an excellent one to share with young readers. Great, thank you. I'll have to check that out. Um, So, but this book, which is all about identity too, uh, and sort of intertwined with identity in all sorts of ways, The Successful Middle School, This We Believe, it's, it's the position paper for AMLE, is that correct? It is, and it's the fifth edition of that uh, position paper, actually. The first one, I think, came out in 1982, so a long time ago. And, and the one before this came out in 2010, is that correct? That is correct, yes. Yep. So it needed some updating. It needed quite a bit of updating, and uh, the association recognized that and was eager to have that happen 
Um, absolutely. It's, you know, it, it has been updated, as I mentioned, uh, now five times. And each time I think it has reflected uh, important societal shifts and uh, also important changes in what we know uh, based on research about what is, uh, what is effective teaching and learning for young adolescents. Um, and, and I think there was a general consensus that there was, that it was overdue, in fact. Um, and I know that you've had um, Kathleen Brinegar on uh, previously, and she's talked about uh, her terrific book also with Lisa Harrison and um, with Alice Heard, uh, Equity and Cultural Responsiveness in the Middle Grades. And I think um, in some ways the themes are, are related in that there's, um, you know, there's been a, a, a pretty, a strong critique of the middle grades uh, movement as one that was very much rooted in um, in white cisgendered middle class Christian perspectives, and, and I think and male to some extent as well. Um, I think that the six the what was called this we believe for the first four iterations of the of the text um, represented the the best of what developmentalism can offer, which is really encouraging teachers to take into account developmental perspectives of this particular time in one's life. Um, but unfortunately, perhaps at the cost of thinking about more diverse populations. So I would say that the most significant um, shift in this text was and, and push for and, and really rationale for the revision um, was to ensure that there was greater attention to diversity and in particular equity. So um, this really, uh, this, this edition, this fifth edition um, was an overt attempt to, to tackle that issue. Um, so yeah, it does it, uh, it does it in terms of complicating the notion of developmentalism, but, but not throwing it out. Um, and it also does it in terms of grounding the work much more solidly in research and particularly in research um, by, with, for, about more diverse populations. Thank you, that's really helpful. I just wanna say for our listeners that the association, AMLE is the Association for Middle Level Education, just to be really clear about that. And um, what I'm hearing from you um, is that the, the previous versions, like our like ourselves, 10, 12 um, or more years ago, was perhaps colorblind and, and blind to all sorts of um, marginalized identities. I would agree. I think colorblind is one of many areas in which it was overlooked, the field was overlooking um, young adolescents and all their terrific diversity. Yeah. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the process that you and Dr. Harrison went through in order to revise this um, sort of association position paper into what it, how it currently is? I'd be happy to. It's an interesting question, and I don't know that um, I've been asked that before, and so it's an interesting one to reflect on. Um, first of all, it was a terrific opportunity to partner with Lisa, Dr. Harrison, because uh, we hadn't collaborated on something before. And although we've known each other, um, it, you know, professionally and, and somewhat personally, it was, it was a great opportunity to, to, to work with her as a, as a colleague and collaborator. Um, I would say that 
to some extent, we went with our strengths. So we looked at the text um, very, very carefully. And we both went in knowing sort of where our strengths were and how we might think about dividing things up. Um, but we also faced a lot of challenges along the way in terms of um, how we how we went about uh, using our own voices and assuming a tone um, that was already laid out. So it's really interesting to revise a text that exists that you didn't write. It's one thing to revise one's own work or even to revise our work together, but we were really building on something that um, generations before us had had constructed. And so um, we very much wanted to honor that work and build on the, the tone that was there and at the same time update it. So there were some tensions there in terms of trying to figure out how to, how to do that well. Um, and then um, I think that, that the easier part was, you know, sort of back and forth between the two of us. It was more like these other authors who came before us trying to, trying to honor their work and at the same time update it. That was, that was both a challenge and it was a, it was a fun challenge, right? So, um, before we get too deep into the content, I want to stop for a moment and appreciate the way that you've woven in the voices of young people. And so there are these delightful quotes and poems and art, and I just really enjoyed that part of the text. And um, particularly, I want to share what is my current favorite. Of course, every time I look at it, I have a new favorite. But on page 43, I just love this painting um, called The Reunion by Anne Lan X, a seventh grader. And um, here are their words. At my school, we do things as a team, whether it's finishing a project or thriving through a pandemic. The vibrant background represents our joyful atmosphere at school where everyone is encouraged to achieve their goal. The abstract body of people represents the school community all coming together to achieve a common goal, which is represented by the wet red heart in the center of the painting. This painting shows that no matter where a person is in real life, they will always have a community that has their back. That just really gets at the heart of what this book is about to me. It also gets at the heart of what a good middle school is, right? It's just so meaningful that, I love that one too. I kind of have shivers as you were reading. <laughs> um, yeah, to me, that one is the essence of the successful middle school, whether we're talking about the book or the school a school, right? It's that you, that's how you want youth to feel in a learning community, right? It's the painted red heart in the center. So I, I love that one too. I'm, I'm delighted that you brought that one out. Well, and it's such a, this kid really gets this in this language that we're hearing about learning loss and recovery um, that comes out of um, policy around the pandemic and education she really gets it like we we are surviving a pandemic together and this strengths-based approach to the current situation that I just think is so wise. Yeah, and, and, it, and I think there's a real a really strong message in that um, about how we start out the new school year as well, right? So as some classrooms will be coming back together for the first time physically um, and as others are increasing their amount of time together we're really going to need to pay extra attention to how we build community, how we respond to the social emotional needs of students, um, how we consider the role of trauma in any of their lives. Uh, 
yeah, it's not going to be about this notion, this concept of learning loss that we're hearing about. It's really about that sense of community and building relationships and re being responsive, being responsive to their needs in whatever form uh, they're showcasing. So. I think we can really learn something from Anlin, which is that um, our words matter. And if, if we start next school year talking about how behind everyone is, that that's gonna have not a great impact on students. Absolutely. Do you have a, a favorite poem or piece of art or quote you'd like to share from the book? Well, uh, as you said, favorites, it depends on the day. Yes. Um, but I would love to, uh, there are so many that I love. And let me just back up to say that I think this is one of the, um, one of the really, uh, one of my favorite pieces about this new edition is the inclusion of student voice and student art. Um, those pieces are so important in the middle grades concept in general. And yet this is the first time that they've appeared in the, in the position paper. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to the Association for Middle Level Education for uh, reaching out to youth and um, inviting their perspectives into the text and then showcasing them so prominently um, because I do think that they, they reveal so much about um, what kids are thinking about and what matters. Um, so today's favorite, uh, is actually the one that opens the book. And that's the, um, it's the drawing by Muhammad, who's in uh, seventh grade. And it's a drawing of, um, he says a character, could, could be a self-portrait, could be a friend, could be just someone in his imagination. Um, but the text uh, in the, on the drawing itself says dream big. And it's a, a person looking up, right? And he's, he's written underneath, Muhammad has written underneath. In this drawing, I made the character dreaming about his future and what he will do. He has big dreams and is always positive about doing the best he can to achieve his goal in life. He wants to make his school and family very proud so he can make a name for himself. And I, th I chose that one this morning because I, I think it says a lot, right? There's so much in there. Um, the idea of dreaming, the idea of aspirations uh, and goals and um, this time in life and all of the identity development and all of the aspiration building that goes on in that time. Um, and it also talks about pressure in some ways to me that, um, that young people are feeling pressure about um, and it, he's not using that term, right? I'm, I'm ascribing it, but, but he wants to make his school and family very proud so he can make his, a name for himself. That, that idea that other people are, um, are aware of what he's doing, of what he's thinking, and that, and that his actions influence others and how important pride is in his, in his world and in his life. Um, it's, it's a beautiful thing and it's a weighty thing. Um, and so I, I point that out because I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, I appreciate the way you're sort of teasing out the tension between aspiration and, um, and you know, sort of obligation, if you will, like this, mm -hmm. the both and of like, mm -hmm. you want people to believe in you and think you're capable of really great things. And it feels like a lot sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it may feel especially a lot to say an 11 year old or, you know, that's a lot to carry with you. 
Yes. Yes. It feels like a lot for me now. Right? <laughs> was That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you for that, Penny. Mm. This book, in my opinion, starts with a bang. Uh, on page three, uh, I just want to read a, a quote because um, I, I just really loved this section about halfway down the page. Successful middle schools are responsive. They respond to the nature of young adolescents and all their amazing diversity and are designed specifically to support the developmental needs and social identities of students. Educators and administrators view students in a positive way, rejecting the deficit perspective too often foisted on middle schoolers by society. They are critically conscious of the fact that students' multiple and intersecting identities influence their experiences, opportunities, and perspectives. Therefore, their practices and policies are just and equitable. I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how this frames the rest of the document. Yeah, you, you certainly pulled out the, the right piece. It, it does in so many ways. And I would just, I would uh, hone in right there on that second sentence, which is, they respond to the nature of young adolescents and all their amazing diversity and are designed specifically to support the developmental needs and social identities of students. I think that the texts that came before this one, um, the four other editions, um, would have said designed specifically to support the developmental needs of students. Uh, and so by adding in the social identities, um, that is essentially what we have taken and expanded. Um, and that's the thread that runs throughout the text. So whereas the text was focused on supporting the developmental nature and needs of the young adolescent, um, this, this version takes social identities, places it soundly at the center, um, problematizes to some extent the developmental uh, perspective, but doesn't throw it out, right? So it allows it to sit side by side, acknowledging that as an age, as an age range, early adolescence, um, there are some, uh, some developmental characteristics that we can ascribe to this age range. And at the same time, there's a danger in doing so without also attending to the, the, the many varied social identities of students. And so um, that's right in that is the thread that runs throughout and that's kind of where we threaded the needle, if you will. Um, and then as we go forward in that paragraph, you can see that there's an emphasis on rejecting a deficit perspective, coming at it from a much more asset-based lens um, introducing the concept of critical consciousness for educators and um, inter uh, introducing the idea of intersectionality here. Um, and then of course, justice and equity. Um, so those are really to mix metaphors further, several seeds that we planted um, that we then uh, water and nurture throughout the book. Yeah, I wanna dig into those a little further because I think they're super important. And so when you say um, problematize the, the, the developmentalism, the way that I'm reading this is that, um, is upending the assumption that um, all of our young people develop in similar the same ways. Right, and saying that in order to truly understand young people, you need to not only understand this concept that that, that um, 
that young people are developing in these different ways, but that their experiences of that are different because of their different identities. Exactly, exactly, Jeannie. And so I think to understand that concept, I think the best spot in the book is actually near the back in which, um, let's see, on page 55, there's a section called Young Adolescent Development and Implications for Educators. And um, in that section where we break down various developmental domains, so uh, physical development and cognitive development, social, emotional, and so on. Um, and Lisa has taken uh, the lead on developing the framework that introduces that in particular. Um, and I think she's done a terrific job here of really helping educators understand that um, we can at the same time um, understand that early adolescents have some uh, that the that the developmental stage of early adolescence uh, has some attributes that um, are in general and in common. And as you said, students experience them in dramatically different ways. And often it's their social and cultural identities that contribute to that variety of experience. So one of the one of the examples of this, I think um, that. Uh, is portrayed in the text is on the bottom of page 56. Um, and I'll just, I'll just read a, a section from there. Making meaning of students solely through developmentalism neglects the social realities that many youth experience. For example, research indicates that black girls often experience adultification or the assumption that they are older than their biological age. The adultification of black girls peaks between the ages of 10 and 14. When adultification occurs, black girls are perceived as less innocent than their white peers. And because they are not recognized as being their actual biological age, their developmental needs are not met. That's an example of, I think, problematizing developmentalism, but also recognizing that, it's, that it is in fact something that occurs, that, that these developmental um, attribute, attributes can be ascribed to larger groups, but their experience, but the way that youth experience them is different and it's often related to their social and cultural identities and racial identities. And so that's just one of the examples of how, that's, that, how that manifests itself in the text. And these, these subtle um, sort of differences in the way young people are perceived based on their identities show up in, uh, the numbers of discipline, like who gets disciplined more and more harshly. They show up in who gets pushed out of schools. We know young Black women are, are more likely to be pushed out of schools or labeled special ed um, for behavior issues. And the same with um, young Black men, right? And, and it Absolutely. starts in preschools, right? It starts mm -hmm. in preschools. Mm -hmm. And so these are really uh, critical additions, I think to the um, field. Yeah, thank you. I think um, there was no question that those, those types of pieces in there were really, really important to updating the text. Um, and I would say that uh, some of them fall into this sort of, sort of category uh, where we discuss them in terms of their the youth development, um, but probably more often we try to make the links to pedagogy and to policy and practice. So um, it's one thing to understand them on a, on a theoretical level, but it's another to imagine what we might 
do as educators uh, about those things and where our sense of agency as educators lies in relation to those things. Well, and one of the things that that came up for me too in this section was thinking about um, identity work with young people, right? And and at the Terran Institute, we work with a lot of schools that do excellent work on helping students, younger and younger, by the way, (laughs) understand their own identities and the identities of people who are different than themselves in order to better understand the world. And in light of this this focus in this document in middle-level education, it feels more important than ever. It does. And I think um, as we think about the ways that students make sense of the world, their own identities and that of others, um, I'm you know, I'm sort of reminded of the intersection between this work and social emotional learning, right? And the whole idea of social awareness as a, as a critical competency and understanding. Um, I, I think that Castle's done some really important work um, in relation to um, also examining their initial set of competencies and going back around and saying, okay, how do we how do we think about these in terms of advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I've been very pleased to see how they've advanced that work. Um, I think there are more and more connections between those. And I should have not used the acronym CASEL. It's okay, we'll put a link to that tool (laughs) in, in the transcript folks, if you're looking. Well, and that just makes me think that, um, in my own evolving thinking, more and more to me, it's not just about um, equitable teaching and learning. It's also about preparing our students, all of our students for the realities of a, of a, a, a world that is that systemically inequitable. Right, developing students' critical consciousness as part of our role as educators. Absolutely, yeah. And thinking, and therefore needing to think critically about our curriculum, our pedagogy, our policies, our practices. I think one of the biggest challenges in this book is that it's such a, um, it's such an overview, right? And so it was it was designed specifically to be a slim volume that would provide a very broad overview of. What, it, what successful middle schools um, uh, are, look like, sound like, and so on. And um, as we think about those essential attributes and characteristics, because it is only an overview, we weren't able to go deeply into any one of those things. So the thinking was more that, um, you know, we would set the stage and then there are, there are already and will continue to be deeper dives into all of these concepts and practices that will be offered. So this book does, um, you know, that broad brushstroke, uh, but we, we really didn't go into sort of the how-to of any of these. And I think that was kind of frustrating for both me and Lisa, even though we knew that that was the task at hand, it was so tempting to provide lots more examples in everything we said. And that was just something that we really, you'll notice there aren't a lot of examples in there. We really reserved um, the use of examples for things that we thought were, uh, that really required them, that reader, that might be new for readers um, because they were particularly new to the, to the position paper, but it was a constant tension. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about the equity literacy framework and about the first step is to recognize. And it feels like a lot of this book is, is steeped in that mm-hmm. recognize, like starting to recognize um, oppression, systems of oppression at work. And I'm going to ask you a question that's going to feel really out in left field, but I, I, I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm kind of obsessed with something right now. Did you learn to square dance when you were in school? Yes, I did. Yeah, I learned to square dance too. Everybody I've asked, now mind you, my, my friend circle at the moment, given COVID, <laughs> is limited, but everybody I have asked, which is not mm-hmm. a ton of people, have also learned to square dance. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I asked one person that I was in a meeting with and she said every year she learned to square dance. And I, wow. when I asked her why, she said, well, it was in the state curriculum. And I said, why again? I love that question, why? <laughs> I'll give you the answer about why. I'd love to hear it. White supremacy. Yeah. Uh, Henry Ford uh-huh. hated jazz and also Jews. And um, he uh. felt like that the thing that would sort of sway us back to wholesome white uh, um, culture and, um, and, and recreation was square dancing. And so he funded movements to get it both in our curriculums and mm-hmm. declared as the, as the state dance, which it became the state dance. Most states didn't have dances for over, I think like 28 different states. Anyway, I'll put a link to the article I read that fascinated me because the question I was left with, which is, I think, relevant, I'm not, this is just not out of left field, to what you said earlier about reconsidering our curriculum is how many things are in our curriculum that we take for granted and they're there because of whiteness defending itself? Mm-hmm. Well, it you know, I think the answer to why almost anything is in the curriculum is white supremacy. So I'm not surprised by that answer, but I am surprised by what a um, what an o- overt uh, act it was, right? So, um, and perhaps I shouldn't be surprised by that either, but that's fascinating and I can't re- wait to, to read it. I also wonder um, about the connection between square dancing and contra dancing. And um, yes, that's probably for another podcast, but, <laughs> but, your point, but your point is an important one. And that is that not only um, do we see very clearly uh, in the curriculum um, that, that white supremacy is, is rooted deeply in the curriculum, but also that it is so unexamined, right? It's, yes. both, it's both of those things. And so, um, so I love that example. And there are so many examples. Uh, and that's just curriculum, right? <laughs> then we could also be unpacking the learning environment and what students experience around them. We could be unpacking the policies and how things like um, dress codes uh, disproportionately uh, target um, black culture and other cultures, but not white culture. <laughs> um, and we could be unpacking, uh, yeah, pedagogy and the way in which we absolutely privilege compliance over um, pushback. So, so yes, um, it, it's a, once you open the door and uh, yeah, it's an, it's a long, long hallway with lots of doors off of it. Yeah. A can of worms, if you will. 
Well, and so I want to open that door a little bit. <laughs> I want to start with Great. another quote because mm-hmm. I think it has huge implications for um, uh, educating both in-service and pre-service teachers um, at the middle level and beyond. Um, and so on page four, you write, to achieve truly responsive middle schools, educators recognize these inequities. And these inequities, I should say, are those uh, faced especially by multiply marginalized young people, students of color and LGBTQ young people specifically. Educators recognize these inequities and implement practices and policies to redress and disrupt them. I think this really shifts our expectations for what um, middle school teachers, middle level educators need to know and understand in order to be able to do that. I agree. I think um, it shifts our expectations for middle schools. And let's be clear, it should shift our expectations for all schools, not just those that are serving young adolescents. But I will say that I think it's especially important for those students, for for schools that that serve early adolescents, particularly because of the profound identity development that's happening at that time. Um, And I think I think that it shifts our expectations, especially given what we know about the demographics of the US population and what we know about teachers, right? So we know that white students are now the minority in US schools, and yet the educator workforce is still overwhelmingly white and it's not changing quickly. It's not changing anytime soon. So in in the year 2000, 84% of teachers identified as white. And in 2018, so 18 years later, 82% identified as white. That's just a shift of 2% in, um, in more than 15 years. So it's pretty profound um, and it's not changing anytime soon. And it matters, it matters because teachers of color uh, or teachers who are indigenous or identify as indigenous, teachers who are black, they're more likely to have higher expectations of students. They're more likely to confront racism when they see it um, or, or hear it or experience it. They are more likely to advocate. Um, They're more likely to develop trusting relationships uh, with students. Um, And that's especially true for those with whom they share a cultural background. So all of those pieces are really, really important for educators and they're more likely to happen. Um, At BIPOC, teachers are more likely to to make those things happen. Um, So there's that disconnect between the white teacher and his or her or their population of students. Um, And then there's that challenge of trying to recruit greater diversity into the teaching workforce. And while that's happening, it's essential that we are, we as teacher educators help educators learn to recognize inequities in policy and practice. So it's it's recognizing the, the square dancing in the curriculum and asking the question, why is this in the curriculum? And what's the legacy of it being in the curriculum? And what are the effects of it being in the curriculum? And then helping them learn to redress and disrupt them. So it's the recognition, of course, but it's moving beyond that as well. So when you think about it, the average teacher in this country is a 43-year-old white woman with about 15 years of teaching experience. So you consider her positionality, and then you consider Um, all of these other factors, right? So there's a lot of education to happen. Certainly there are plenty of great teachers who are the average teacher doing really good work. So I'm not dismissing that, 
but there are a lot of folks who have a long way to go in terms of understanding um, the role of, of racism in our schools, the role of white supremacy in our schools and culture. And it's a long, uh, it's a long journey um, to getting to the point where people are going to actually redress some of these issues. So as teacher educators, we need to work um, on multiple levels, right? We need to work in the teacher professional development space around, around this. And we also need to be informing pre-service teachers. So pre-service pre teacher preparation programs really need to think about teachers who are just coming out into the field. Um, so there are multiple lever, lever, levers here for us to use, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a big project. It's interesting because now working at the University of Vermont and with um, the College of Education and Social Services, I see real differences in how teachers are being prepared to compare to when I was um, in my uh, master's program for library science. Um, there's so much more talk about um, identities and oppression and um, I just love some of the things that are happening. And one of the things when I've been doing my research that I became aware of is this whole line of research, was, which is about how we're preparing our teachers for um, cultural responsiveness, right? They're getting a lot of training that, but then they land in schools where it's either poo-pooed or there's not space for it. And so then they revert back Mm -hmm. to the culture of the school, which is not responsive. And so I hear you at the both end of that. It's not enough to prepare new teachers. We also have to create schools that are ready for these teachers so they can continue to grow those skills and thrive and thrive in order to serve their students so their students can thrive. And I would add that the maybe a third piece to that and that is the that we also need to equip the pre-service or the newer teachers going into the schools to understand how to disrupt the status quo. So not just to get, um, not just to resist push the pushback, but also to persevere. Um, and that's not a new challenge, right? Uh, it, it's one that for any sort of progressive movement in education has, ha, ha, you know, has existed, um, but it's perhaps the most, it, it's perhaps, um, while it's not new, it seems like the stakes are higher than ever. Um, for that to happen. And uh, Jessica Demink-Carthy, one of our colleagues is doing some interesting research on, uh, on preparing uh, teachers to be advocates in that work. Um, and so uh, she's identifying some skills and, uh, and dispositions that are, um, that, that teachers, that young or newer teachers, sorry, novice teachers find useful in, in that context. And I think that's gonna be really important in the years to come. I'm so glad you mentioned Jessica, because when I'm working with um, teachers who've come through the UVM program and are in schools, they're like, oh, I loved my literature class with um, Jessica Domingue-Carthy because it forced me to look beyond what I'd been reading. It forced me to look for diverse perspectives. And so she's having a real impact in, yeah. in our, in our schools. I want to ask you another question about this, though, because as I travel around Vermont or travel by Zoom currently, um, there is something I hear sometimes that really bothers me. And I, I wonder, given our current, this conversation we've been having about it, which is, oh, well, our school is mostly or all white, so we don't need to talk about race. This book, I think, points, points to some problems with that statement. I sure hope it does. 
<laughs> because I think there are tremendous problems with that statement. In fact, I would argue that it's um, perhaps all the more important um, to have deep and thoughtful conversations about race in predominantly white schools and classrooms. First of all, let's trouble, let's like trouble that perspective a little bit, right? Um, there are a lot of assumptions that are made about um, people's backgrounds uh, and cultural and racial heritage. Um, so teachers that are saying that, um, for example, here in Vermont, which is a predominantly white state, um, despite the fact that we have very rich and diverse uh, refugee resettlement communities in our state, we have a lot of, uh, of what might be perceived as predominantly white communities. Um, and yet we have a very rich um, heritage of uh, Native Americans. We have a very rich, which, so there are folks who identify first and foremost as Native Americans. We also have folks who identify as indigenous. We have folks who identify as French Canadian. Um, and each of those has its own historic legacies. And then we certainly have a lot of people of uh, color who may or may not identify first and foremost as that. Um, so we make a lot of assumptions based on, on, on visual appearance. So that's probably one of the first things I would trouble is, um, do, is your classroom really all white? And yes. what does white actually mean? Does, you know, and where do folks from other places, you know, how do they identify? Which, which really invites that conversation around identity as curriculum. How do, we, how do we, in fact, invite in the conversation about identity as curriculum, including about race and ethnicity? Um, yeah, so and, there's that, <laughs> sorry. White is a race. <laughs> and race is socially constructed so yes. <laughs> so um yeah there are just so many so many problems with that statement so um yes i kind I of lost my train of thought there but no that was perfect thank you um so let's you know let's back up a minute and just talk about just for people who haven't read it yet um the structure of this book because it's organized in a really interesting way um there are five essential attributes that you uh, outline those are that um education for young adolescents must be responsive challenging empowering equitable and engaging and then you have 18 characteristics that you divide up into um, three categories before digging deeper into those. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that structure? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, this is one of the things that um, I could actually, in fact, Lisa and I have used this as a way to talk about what's new in the text. Um, so the essential attributes, uh, I think we, we've done some work on those. Um, we actually increased them from four to five. The en engaging is the additional attribute from the earlier editions. Although you would think that equitable would be given our emphasis, it was there, um, but we really changed the language of, in how it was described um, to elevate the importance of justice. So there was very little conversation about justice in the earlier version. And, I, and when we talk about equitable, that's a really key feature of it for us. Um, and then engaging, um, we just recognized that given the, the nature of young adolescents that an education could be responsive and challenging and empowering and equitable, and in fact, not be engaging. <laughs> it's hard to imagine it, but it's, it is too. So, um, so yes. The, the attributes are um, important and, and I think what they serve to do is to sort of, um, they're sort of infused across the text. And then the characteristics really drive the 
structure of the text and the content of the text. So the attributes are kind of overarching. And then we have three categories of the characteristics, culture and community, curriculum instruction and assessment, and leadership and organization. And we also changed the order of these, not that they're essentially in order of importance, but we did intentionally front load culture and community. And we did in intentionally put educators respect and value young adolescents at the very top of this. Um, the culture and community um, seems to be the very foundation upon which everything else can be built. And as is the notion that anyone working with young adolescents absolutely must respect and value them. Um, that is a non-negotiable. Yeah, I love, you put that front and center on page 11. Educators respect and value young adolescents. That does seem like a no-brainer. <laughs> and yet it feels necessary to say it out loud. Yeah. Yes. And I think, you know, it's interesting not to go too far down the policy conversation, but I think this is one of the reasons why having middle grades teaching licensure is so important mm -hmm. um, because it really does say, I have made a deliberate choice to work with this age group. I love this age group. I want to spend time helping them learn and thrive and grow in all different kinds of ways. Um, and in our state, as with others, where there is overlapping licensure, you have folks who can conceivably be, well, who are licensed and could conceivably teach this age group without having had any experience um, with them. Or um, you could have um, teachers working with this age group who are doing so by default, who really wanna teach AP bio, but ended up getting a seventh grade science, general science position, right? And so having this front and center is really saying, we, we need teachers who want to work with young adolescents. It's not a default plan B. Yeah, who see them in all their glory. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And celebrate that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really love this um, section on um, culture and community. And um, because I'm doing a lot of um, reading about culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogies right now, I see that showing up throughout this document over and over again. And I just, I, uh, they're so, these practices are so important. Um, and I just want to acknowledge and honor the Black scholars who, who have done the foundational work in culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogies. So I'm thinking of um, Gloria Ladson-Billings and Geneva Gay and Django Paris and Sammy Aleem. And I'm sure there are others we should name. And so I'm wondering if you wanted to um, sort of give any shout outs for the mm -hmm. folks who have influenced the thinking here. I would love to, yeah. I would add Bettina Love. I'm sure many of your listeners know and respect her work. Um, she's done really important work on the intersections of black and queer identities um, and has used a, um, uh, what she theorizes uh, as a ratchet lens, which I just find fascinating. Um, and also her amazing work on abolitionist teaching, which um, offers some important frameworks for us on how to do some of this work. Goldie Muhammad's work, uh, particularly on literacy development and writing practices uh, among black communities. And I especially appreciate her work um, as she was uh, a middle school teacher herself, those are her roots. And then absolutely my co-author, uh, Lisa Harrison, who's doing really, really incredible work in this area and um, is, is moving this entire field of middle grades education forward. Um, so a huge, huge shout out to her. 
I will also note that um, one, one change in the book is the integration of research, which wasn't in the book before in the, in the prior editions. And so you'll find uh, an embarrassingly long number of um, endnotes in the book, but they're really important um, because they are our way of saying, if you wanna learn more, go to this, go to this person, go to this scholar. And so um, we were really, really careful to be thoughtful about which scholars we were relying upon, um, what their you know, participants or research sample looked like uh, in terms of demographics, um, whose truths are, are centered. Um, and so I, I hope that those, uh, that ridiculously long list in the back is actually a gift that it's, um, that it's useful for folks who wanna dive deeper and that it also does highlight and celebrate these black scholars and many others from um, marginalized identities. I have already added so many things to my reading list from this list. Uh, um, so, glad. so thank you. I see it as a gift for sure. Um, and so the, the second sort of bucket of um, characteristics of a successful middle school is in the curriculum instruction and assessment chapter. And um, there's just so much great text in this little document. I mean, it's really only like 70 some pages, right? And yet there's so many things that I was like highlighting and putting exclamation points next to. And one was um, one that stuck out for me is from page 35. It says, instruction fosters learning that is active, purposeful and democratic. And I wondered if you wanted to paint a picture of that. Sure, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll point out that democratic is an additional term that was sort of, it was used in the earlier text, but it's been elevated to the point of a characteristic and that felt really important to us. I think that we've talked about democratic classrooms and de democratic schools and education in the middle grades um, field for a long, long time. And we were very fortunate, are very fortunate to have James Bean um, who has done some fundamental work in, in, in middle schooling uh, in relation to that. His, his book with Michael Apple was foundational. Um, so it's not a new concept, but we did feel like it was really important to elevate. I think there are a lot of well-known approaches that um, can meet the description of active, purposeful, and democratic, but they don't always end up that way when they're enacted, right? So um, the idea of project-based education, for example, um, or project-based learning, um, is there's there's so many iterations of that, whether you're um, you know, whether, if you're thinking about a continuum of practice, it's, uh, you find lots of places along that continuum, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's one of many places where those kinds of things can happen, where, where you can have active, purposeful, and democratic um, characteristics of, of the practice. So where would you point, where would you point middle-level teachers to find some some examples or some, oh gosh, some um, paths forward to, mm -hmm. to um, learning that is active, purposeful, and democratic, or more active, purposeful, and democratic. There are, there are lots of, of practices that could meet that if they are, in fact, um, implemented fully. Uh, we have so many good examples, um, project-based learning, place-based education, 
service learning and especially critical service learning, um, negotiated curriculum, the, the James Bean model of negotiated curriculum, which has been riffed on a number of times in different ways and exciting iterations. Um, particularly youth participatory action research, I think is an incredibly exciting way to engage learners. Um, and I would, I, you know, I would, I would apply those, uh, those characteristics as a set of questions as you're implementing them, right? So in what ways is this, is my application of project-based learning? What, what ways is it active? What, what ways are my learners active? In what ways are they pursuing something purposeful? And this is the one I think that is sometimes um, the trickiest uh, and sometimes gets left out. In what ways is it democratic? How have our students um, or how have my students um, been involved in identifying what and how they learn, um, identifying the problems they want to solve in the world, um, contributing to personal or social, uh, to contributing to learning that is uh, uh, personally and socially meaningful. Um, those kinds of questions to pose when you're when you're pursuing those um, different avenues, um, I think are really useful. Thank you, that was super helpful for me. <laughs> um, so let's touch on the last section, which I also really uh, appreciated, which is the leadership and organization section. And on page 46, um, you clearly make anti-racism and equity a top priority, and you even um, share what it looks like. I wondered if you could read um, a good portion of page 46 out loud for our, our listeners. I'd be happy to. Uh, let me see here. Middle school's policies and practices significantly impact school culture, programming, instruction, improvement efforts, and family and community engagement. Successful middle grades educators and leaders intentionally examine the policies and practices that guide teaching and learning within their schools to ensure that all students' academic and personal needs are met. This goal is upheld when policies and practices are student-centered, anti-racist, academically rigorous, and responsive to the realities of students and their families' lives. Middle school professionals are keenly aware of the historic and present inequitable educational experiences and outcomes for students, particularly culturally and linguistically diverse, economically disadvantaged, and LGBTQ students. This is seen through disciplinary practices that result in higher school suspensions and expulsion rates of black and LGBTQ students, in school tracking practices that result in an overwhelming absence of black, indigenous, and Latinx students in gifted education and underfunding of schools in impoverished communities. However, effective middle schools purposefully work to create equitable outcomes for students and their families. Such practices include incorporating service learning within the curriculum that connects learning to active community engagement, implementing clubs that demonstrate to students that their varied identities are valued and welcomed, incorporating ethnic studies as an integrated part of the curriculum, using restorative justice approaches as an alternative to exclusionary and punitive discipline practices, and offering weekend and summer food programs to ensure that students who are food insecure have access to food when school is not in session. Middle schools that implement such practices support the well-being and academic success of students while also showing their commitment to the communities in which they're located. You want me this to? Is, no, that was perfect. Okay. So this is hard work. 
I think this is really challenging for schools, but um, we can do hard things and, and we must. And so I wondered uh, what, what, do, what would be your response if school said, well, wait, we already have too much on our plate to worry about this. I think nothing else is going to work until we get this work done. Yeah. You know, I was actually just having a conversation last night with, with my husband who is a, a, a 35 years veteran teacher and we were really grappling with this sort of, um, how do we move schools forward in this area um, when there's so many other pressures brought to bear? And uh, I think I was sort of, I was asking that question um, maybe even rhetorically because I didn't really expect an answer. And he was the one who reminded me, he said, you know, what, none of the, no, nothing else is gonna work until we get this right. And so spending time on those other things, um, just it's not where our energy um, and time and commitment is best used until we have the other piece in place, until we have more equitable uh, anti-racist schools and educators, we're not gonna make the progress that we need to make on the other things. Um, and I would say and it, it's sort of a both and because the other piece to that is um, it should be embedded in everything we're doing. So it's not as though, um, those other things get put on hold, it's that they're done differently, that they're done with an eye toward equity as front and center. Um, so as we're examining uh, how we move our literacy rates, uh, how we improve our literacy rates, for example, um, it's, it's about unpacking all that surrounds that and undergirds the literacy rates, right? Um, won't do any good to just adopt another literacy curriculum. I, I totally hear and appreciate your answer. And, and one of the things I would add is that we're doing work all the time in schools. And if we do the work with equity and anti-racism at the front of our brain, we won't have to redo it later. That focusing on it as we're doing the work we're doing, it saves us time in the long run and is the right thing to do. It's not just that we do it because it's efficient, but like, if we're doing the work, doing it with equity and anti-racism in the center of the work is the best way to do the work. Completely agree. And it must be done in partnership. Um, I think that's another piece of it. In, in states like ours where um, we are predominantly white and as we know with our predominantly white uh, teacher workforce in the country, um, we're gonna make a lot of mistakes along the way and it's gonna be really important to do this work in partnership and to uh, admit mistakes and to recognize um, where we don't know enough. And so it's a really, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing journey. Oh, I appreciate that so much. It reminds me of a quote that I often think of um, that it stands uh, with me all the time to remind me of my own um, frailty <laughs> and that is nothing about us without us is for us and so thinking about we really need to engage communities of color lgbtq community members and our students in this work because without them it's not for them yeah. penny how would you like to see middle level administrators and educators using this text well, I, um, 
I have spoken with a number of folks who are, and it seems like it's turning out to be a very useful text for um, you know a, a faculty, a whole faculty read. Um, so I've heard of educate uh, uh, principals, for example, who are using it um, as sort of the the shared book for faculty development. Um, they're also using it to analyze their practice to sort of do a, a self-assessment of where they are based on some of the characteristics um, and attributes. Um, I've heard of others who are using it in community. So they're using it with their, um, as a invited text um, for uh, a, a four week session where they unpack a little bit of it each week with community members and parents and, and families. Um, and it seems like that's been uh, a pretty exciting uh, way to bring a community together around what they imagine for their their school and their um, and their learners. Um, what I haven't heard of yet, but what I keep hoping for, is the engagement of kids in it. That they will, in fact, um, encourage students to do uh, some sort of self assessment of their school, and then um, tie it to some uh, youth participatory action research because I think. It's incredibly relevant for, for youth and would be a great example of the kind of um, active and, and um, democratic and purposeful learning that we were talking about earlier. I love that so much. Listeners, you got to let us know if you start unpacking this text with your students. We want to hear about it. We want to hear all about it. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I'd like to thank you. It's such a privilege to talk with you today. I appreciate that you're interested in the book and I'm, I'm, uh, and I'm appreciative to, to any listener who's trying to do this work in his or her or their classrooms and schools. Um, and I just wanna give a shout out again to the students who contributed their voices and their artwork to the book because I think they, they're the ones who've made it. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for talking to me about this. Um, and thank you to you and Dr. Harrison for, um, for this reframing. I'm really grateful and appreciative of it. And um, yeah, it's always a delight to talk to you, Penny. Thank you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Penny Bishop for appearing on the show and talking with me about the successful middle school, This We Believe. If you're looking for a copy of The Successful Middle School, check your local library. Many, many thanks to Audrey Holman for working her magic as our producer and audio engineer. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.